coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy Tuesday to you. Atlanta City Council's been kind of busy the last couple of days. Uh, one, a proclamation honoring uh, President Jimmy Carter. As we all know, Jimmy Carter is in home hospice, surrounded by his wife, Rosalind, and family members and loved ones. And, of course, we all collectively wrap our arms around that family in the community of Plains, Georgia, as uh, they uh, spend their remaining moments, days, however long we have, with uh, former President Jimmy Carter still on this planet. Uh, something else that I thought was pretty interesting that uh, Atlanta City Council did was they were taking some of the uh, American Rescue Plan funds and uh, using it to help uh, set aside $500,000 in federal funding to provide a housing subsidy for city firefighters, police officers, and corrections officials. Uh, my city councilman, Amir Faroki, spoke a little bit about this. Legislation sets aside $500,000 in federal ARPA funds. Uh, that were released in the wake of the pandemic uh, to help us with recruitment and retention of our public safety officers, so police, fire, corrections, uh, by providing uh, rental assistance for those who are interested in applying to do so. So the funds will flow from the city, which holds the ARPA funds, to the Atlanta Police Foundation, which will administer the funds in uh, collaboration with the Atlanta Apartment Association. The real intent is to get our officers and firefighters living in the city if they want to. Uh, we hear from them all the time. It's a a decision they uh, would like to make but aren't able to make, uh, even as we've made our salaries competitive uh, across the metro region. Uh, and look, it, it benefits us all if our public safety personnel live in the city, they understand the city better, uh, they get to know their neighbors, uh, the community, which um, is a benefit to the city, but this is also a great tool for recruiting and retention, which is um, top of mind for all of us in both fire and police. Councilman Faroki was asked, why is this an important measure to do right now? Yeah, I think this is important at a time when we're, one, trying to recruit and retain officers and firefighters. Uh, it's a useful tool we have. I'm hoping it becomes a permanent piece of our, our general fund budget. We'll see how this first year goes. Uh, I also think, like, given where housing costs are, uh, we have an obligation to try and increase housing stock for every person who wants to live in the city. Uh, but if we can do so for a really core part of our city employee base, um, we should do so. Forgive me while I do the raining on the parade part. Uh, that's fine. I'm all about helping our corrections officers, our police officers, our fire personnel uh, have places to live in Atlanta. However, we're giving money to the Atlanta Apartment Association. And I got nothing against that particular association except to say that uh, apartment owners are for-profit entities. And at the end of the day... All we're doing is actually driving up rent rates for everyone else by taking up inventory in the rental market inside the city of Atlanta, which is already sizzling hot to begin with. And instead, we could be putting those funds towards down payment assistance so that police officers and their families, fire department officials and their families, corrections officers and their families could be purchasing homes instead of renting out apartments to pad the profits of landlords, corporate landlords. I would imagine all of the Atlanta Apartment Association is uh, some sort of a business entity, right? I mean, let me Google that real quick. 
Oh, turns out I can't do that. That is a restricted page. I would have to be a member of the Atlanta Apartment Association to be able to see that. Certainly that would tell me that we're not talking about mom and pop landlords, folks who may, like inside my condo building, we have folks who own their condo and own one as well in the building, maybe a smaller one that they rent out and use for rental income as well. I highly doubt the Atlanta Apartment Association includes those sort of folks. So I'm saying, unless there's some sort of obstacles that would not allow us to use the American Rescue Plan funds towards purchasing homes or allowing folks to purchase homes, can we not find some way to make that more a possibility? Because renting is fine. It's it's nice to live in the city that you work in. I readily accept that that is fantastic. It's good to community development, character in the community, uh, putting some equity in the job for those who are doing it, but would really, what would really develop some roots for folks and help with retention is if we would assist our police officers, our, our fire department personnel, our corrections officials, city employees, period, uh, Atlanta school board, uh, Atlanta public school teachers is to have some skin in the game, to actually own a piece of property, to own land, the home that they stay in inside the city of Atlanta. That's how you keep retention minimized. Oh, and help grow familial generational wealth for that family in the process. That literally gives them some stake in the city and its fortunes. All right, off my soapbox. That's just something we should work on. You know what? I need to have my councilman on the show at some point in time anyway. And by the way, we're working on uh, uh, getting Mayor Andre Dickens on the show, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, We didn't do uh, On This Day in Black History yesterday, so let me get to some of that. It was yesterday's date that uh, Charles Wade Barkley was uh, born on this date in 1963. Uh, Let's see. It was Sidney Poitier. Who was an actor, Sidney Poitier, who was born on yesterday's date, uh, February 20th, in the year 1927. It was Frederick Douglass who died on yesterday's date in the year 1895. Of course, Frederick Douglass, known to be the African American social reformer, abolitionist, orator, writer, and statesman who escaped from slavery before becoming a noted and national abolitionist movement leader in both Massachusetts and New York. It was on this day in Black History, February 21st, the year 1933. Oh, Nina Simone, one of my favorite voices. Nina Simone was born, uh, Eunice Wayman, born on this date. The first woman elected to the House of Representatives was born on this date, February 21st, 1936. A Democrat, the first African-American elected to the Texas Senate after Reconstruction and the first Southern African-American woman elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. It was also on this date in 1965 that Malcolm X was assassinated, being gunned down on the Audubon ballroom stage as his pregnant wife and four daughters took cover in the front row. And last but certainly not least, born on this day in the year 1940, a fellow by the name of John Robert Lewis, born in Troy, Alabama, the third child of 10 kids, who would later become a civil rights icon representing the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia in the halls of Congress. Before then, he was an Atlanta city councilman 
beginning in the year 1981, winning his first congressional race in the year 1986, representing the 5th District, defeating Republican Portia Scott. In 2011, President Barack Obama awarding him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. That's John Lewis, born on this date, February 21st, 1940. Uh, Today's headlines, real quick, an interesting note, uh, the Associated Press had a story talking to the forewoman of the Fulton County Grand Jury investigating Trump's attempts to overturn the election. We share that AP piece now if you follow The Ron Show at ronshowatl on Twitter. Also, if you're ever wondering whatever became of Marcus Flowers, the man who tried to unseat Marjorie Taylor Greene in her congressional district, well, the Northwest Georgia News is reporting that he's making some noise again. And he's got more than $600,000 in the coffers if he wants to make another run of it. Last Saturday night, Flowers sent a pointed note with the subject line, I hear you, loud and clear, to his email database. And according to Northwest Georgia News, quote, what's most of interest, he didn't just share feedback from supporters in the 14th Congressional District or other parts of the state. He name-dropped Idaho, Texas, California, and Oregon, quote, people all across the country who feel like you. He closes with a teaser. We're building a coalition right now, and in the next few weeks, I'll be able to share more about how we can work together to fight for democracy. But in the meantime, I just wanted you to know that I see you and I hear you and that people all over the country are with you. Uh, The Northwest Georgia News goes on to report no word yet on his plans as he's still not returning calls and emails to them. For now, nothing is showing up on either the Federal Election Commission site or state files. Incidentally, in that part of the state, in that part of her district, uh, the folks around might be a little, a little uh, hurt. Uh, as the Northwest Georgia News goes on to report in a, a nice little notebook that they do on politics, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her staff are closing their Rome congressional office sites. Now, they cite low post-COVID foot traffic. But there was also this line about, quote, being a good steward of taxpayer funds, leading to, quote, the decision made to consolidate offices in Dalton. The Northwest Georgia News opines that perhaps it's because Floyd County was the uh, third worst performing county for Marjorie Taylor Greene, although she still got two thirds of the vote. Only Paulding County with 61.4% and Cobb, giving her 33.5%, were counties that she performed worse in. Whitfield County, by the way, she got 69.9% of the vote and Northern Tier counties in the upper 70s and low 80% of the vote. All right. It's all about school choice. The rest of the show, Donald Trump wants to lock teenagers in prison. And we talk with Dr. Stephen Owens, the director of education at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute about school choice later. Stand by. Incidentally, for those who don't know, my full-time job is that I am a realtor, a real estate agent with EXP Realty. And you can dive right into the latest listings, get your home value checked out, check out open houses by visiting me at rononthereal.com. Even share some uh, blog posts that has me focusing in on the real estate industry and trends. Obviously, interest rates are climbing right now, which has a lot of folks thinking, oh, that means the market's going to go south. Mm, Atlanta's, Atlanta's a different animal. Money Magazine actually says that Atlanta is the number one place to live, the best place to live in the United States. And by 2040, there will be two and a half million more of us living in Metro Atlanta. There's like six million now. That's a big chunk of people coming 
in the next 18 years. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, 18 years, that's that's a long way from now. Do you know it was 18 years ago we were all jamming in the club to a new song called Yeah by Usher, Little John, and Ludacris? Yeah. <laughs> Not all that long ago, right? Life moves pretty fast. Ferris Bueller, thank you. Currently, we are seeing mortgage interest rates at or above 7%. That's a far cry from the below 3% figures we were enjoying the last two years, but they're not all that different than what they were in 2004, 18 years ago. And by 2040, if you pull the trigger on a home purchase or a rental income investment property today, you'd be either done with it if you chose a 15-year mortgage or more than halfway through a 30-year note with equity growing by the year in a local housing market needing space for two and a half million more people by 2040. What I'm saying is what you buy now is likely going to be wildly more valuable in 2040 or even 2030. It really is good to be number one, especially if you own your own home or a rental income property or both in Metro Atlanta. Hit me up, Ron at rononthereal.com, 843-283-0078. Georgia MLS 396-720. Take the Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One Radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic, wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So uh, I'd say in about 12, 15 minutes or so, we're going to be on with Dr. Stephen Owens with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. He is the Director of Education for the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Uh, And uh, he caught my eye last week when he was retweeting an article, an, an opinion piece actually written in the AJC that calls for more funding of school vouchers for charter schools, pub, private schools, and often in the case with private schools, parochial schools as well. Corey Burris of the Georgia Center for Opportunity said that school choice advocates are not against public schools, and yet somehow we're going to take funds from public schooling to divert to these charter schools, private schools that have no one to answer for. By the way, Burris um, used to live in Washington State, part of an organization called the Freedom Foundation there, which is literally (laughs) one of these uh, organizations that that talks about big government and union bosses and left-wing this and woke that and rah, rah, rah. But he's not against public schools. I'll tell you who is against public schools. Donald Trump. I mean, you remember who his... (laughs) <laughs> Department of Education head was, right? Uh, yeah, the, the head of the Department of Education was a private school product by the name of Betsy DeVos. And good news, Trump announced yesterday that as president, he's going to have the Department of Justice and the Department of Education take over school discipline of students. Uh-huh. He said it. We'll end the leftist takeover of school discipline and juvenile justice. Many of these carjackers and criminals are 13, 14, and 15 years old, I will order the education and justice departments to overhaul federal standards on disciplining minors. So when troubled youth are out in control, they're out on the streets and they're going wild, we will stop it. The consequences are swift, certain, and strong, and they will know that. In other words, while there are those of us who would like to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline, Donald Trump would like to reinforce it. So once again, the party of small government has plenty of big government for anyone that they deem a threat. And instead of funding the sort of needs that would see to it that the school-to-prison pipeline gets shut down so that these imperiled youth 
become complicit, learning, starving, hungry to learn youth. He wants to bring in the Department of Justice to take a 13-year-old and make a prisoner of that 13-year-old. Because recidivism isn't a thing in this country, right? And then there's scholastic discipline bias. The Brookings Institute wrote about this uh, two and a half years ago. Education scholars, it says, have hypothesized that implicit bias or unconscious beliefs may contribute to stubborn racial disparities in education, such as differences in student achievement and school discipline between black and white students. For instance, teachers' unconscious racial beliefs could produce biased evaluations of students' academic performance, which translates into a real implication, which translates into real implications for educational attainment. Yet evidence linking teachers' bias to these disparities has been lacking. In a study published in Educational Researcher in July of 2020, Brookings Institute writes, we examined teachers' implicit biases and their correlates. Our findings, described in more detail, largely confirm hypotheses that connect county-level teacher implicit bias to disparities in achievement and school discipline between black and white students at the county level. This piece goes on to point out that uh, some of their findings are uh, as included. Our first key finding is that educators, like the general public, hold slight pro-white anti-black implicit bias, and that this bias is more strongly related to individual factors than contextual factors. Teachers of color show lower average bias than white teachers, with black teachers showing the least anti-black bias. But teachers of color are a far smaller share of the teaching workforce than white teachers. Female teachers who continue to substantially outnumber male teachers show lower average bias as well. The piece goes on to say, we also find that teachers working in counties with larger shares of black students exhibit lower levels of implicit bias. This might be because teachers with lower bias prefer to work in counties with more black students and or that working in schools serving more black students leads to lower bias. Regardless, there is some relief that we do not observe the reverse pattern. They go on to say, our second key finding is that we observe larger racial disparities in test scores and suspensions in counties with stronger implicit and explicit pro-white anti-black bias among teachers. They go on to share a couple of graphs, some nice figures that really spell this out in visual terms, and then conclude, our overall research suggests that teachers' biases may contribute to the seemingly entrenched disparities in academic achievement and suspensions between black and white students. Education reformers and policymakers have sought to reduce unequal outcomes for black students for decades. Many of these efforts, even when undertaken by well-intentioned educators, have largely failed. The undercurrent of education implicit bias could be part of the explanation as to why well-meaning reforms to address racial disparities have little to show for. And I would maintain that those implicit biases and those disparate outcomes do not occur in a vacuum. Obviously, you have disparities in income from family to family, neighborhood to neighborhood, school district to school district, county to county, and even state to state. However, at the core of this, in my opinion, is that we have political factions that are arguing across the trench of warfare here instead of dealing with the atrocities in the trenches. And what we have now in this post-white flight, I say post-white flight, there still seems to be elements of that although to me a lazier version, in this post-white flight era, we're getting to the point now where we have one side that says our public education system is failing our students. It needs stronger funding. 
and the other side that says, no, we agree, our public education system is failing a lot of our school kids, and we need to take those kids and some of the funding out of the public schooling to save those kids. The problem is they want to take that public school funding and hand it over to private schools, a lot of them for profit, by the way, some of them parochial, and many of them can be traced back to segregation academies, all of whom have no one at any level of governance to answer to. I ask folks on the right this all the time. How are you so afraid of Big Brother that you get to elect representation to every two, three, or four years, but you're not afraid of big business that you play no role in seating a board member, CFO, or CEO? If we continue to starve public education in this country, there's no school board to go yell at. There's no culpability for teaching your child some other form of indoctrination. You're afraid of scientific, mathematic, sociological, or diversity indoctrination? What are you going to do about it when it's a private school? Move them to another one? That's not good for your kid either. We talk with Dr. Stephen Owens with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute about school choice next. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. And it's my honor to have Dr. Stephen Owens, who is the Director of Education at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, join me. Dr. Owens, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, last week, the AJC posted an op-ed that was written by Corey Burris representing an organization called the Georgia Center for Opportunity. I love the names of these organizations, by the way. The Georgia Center for Opportunity. I mean, it, who, who could disagree with wanting opportunity in the state of Georgia? It's all inside what's the wrapper, though. Uh, the op-ed right. talks a lot about school choice. And in your tweet, uh, you retweeted the, the, the OP itself. And then noted that the author laments that public schools are overwhelmed and then asked that millions more public dollars be diverted to unaccountable private schools. It's almost like these two things are related. Now, when you read the uh, opinion piece in the AJC, Corey goes on to say he's not about, he doesn't want to take money from public schools. But is he being disingenuous or is there some sleight of hand going on here with this conversation? It's, it's hard to imagine a world where school choice proliferates. Uh, without it hurting public schools because it's the same public dollars. Like we're talking about the same pot of money, mm-hmm. which is our tax dollars, revenue that state collects. If we're going to send that to private schools, that has got to come from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and we know that public schools are the largest line item inside the state of Georgia's budget. And that is right and good um, that this is a primary, it's in the state constitution. It's a primary ob- obligation in the state of Georgia to provide uh adequate public education for all students free of charge. And so whenever I hear folks say that, like, okay, we can do both. We can have a school choice system and a public education system. I find that hard to believe when these vouchers that the author wrote that need to be expanded were started when the state of Georgia was cutting billions from public education. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very much treated in the eyes of lawmakers as um, instead of going to public schools, why don't we instead fund this, these these private schools via these vouchers? So it's hard for me to not see the connection between those things. The reason schools might struggle to provide opportunities is because they don't have the resources because we're sending hundreds of millions of dollars to things like private school vouchers. Right. 
Talk to me from a parental lens, though. If you are a parent and you have a child, uh, you, you live in the community you can afford to live in, and the schools in that community are failing, talk to me uh, as if I were a parent who, on the outside, thinks, yeah, I, I, I would love better schools, and if I had a voucher or a scholarship that were, would enable me to send my child to a better performing school, why wouldn't I be for that? I think it's a little bit of myth of what better performing means. Okay. That uh, in the American mind, the idea of excluding certain children means that school must be great. That because if there's a line stand that's been formed outside a door, may, it must be exclusive, and that must mean they are doing excellent work. Um, I, I don't think that we need to to uh, give the benefit of the doubt to private schools that if you kick out kids for being gay or for being trans or because they can't meet the needs of them with special needs that somehow that makes that a good school um that that means that they are picking the children this is not school choice in the sense of parent empowerment it's school choice in the sense that the school gets to choose who they are educating so that does not sound to me like an excellent school that that sounds like a, a high wall has been put around that education and does it not um, fulfill a, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy if you take the best of the best from the public schooling systems and leave the children that are, are more in need of one-on-one -on -one attention, are you not fulfilling what you say is already the case in the public school sector to begin with? Absolutely. I mean, so higher ed is a great example here. Um, we celebrate schools that reject tons of kids and say they, they're excellent. Look at the Ivy Leagues, how excellent they are, because uh, look at what these graduates are doing. They're rejecting 93, 95% of the people who apply. Mm. So, yes, absolutely. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where it looks like they're doing such great work when really they're failing to educate all students. And, and then what makes this even harder to swallow is that now that we have like these good uh, blue ribbon studies of how students who take these vouchers are doing, it's clear that they're taking this ridiculous hit to their test scores once they use a voucher hmm. that uh, students who use these vouchers in universal states like Louisiana, Indiana, Ohio, when we've had good high quality studies of how they're doing, the hit to their test scores is worse than what's happened uh, with school closures due to the coronavirus. It's worse than uh, what happened to students' test scores after Hurricane Katrina. Mm. Um, you'll hear a lot of lawmakers, I think rightfully, bemoan the hit to kids' test scores, reading and math. Uh, because of school closures, because they lost uh, their parents and grandparents. Um, and they say, okay, how are we going to get kids' scores back? We have not measured a worse education intervention than school vouchers. What, what is so, the cause yeah, of that? Seem like, well, because these schools are not prepared to educate all children. Uh. <laughs> they, are they are educating portions of it. And when we create these programs, hundreds of millions of dollars, state dollars, it incentivizes bad programs to open up and get that free money. We are not asking anything in return. We're just saying you can just have this money. We don't test to see how the kids are doing in Georgia. We don't hold those schools to account for strong accounting practices, for strong hiring practices. You don't have to have a bachelor's degree to teach in some of these schools. They're not prepared. Mm. And we're not actually studying to see if they're doing well there. So we have to look at studies outside the state. So yeah, they're, they're, the schools are failing, but they continue to kind of succeed in the, in the imagination of the way we talk about private schools. We're on with Dr. Stephen Owens, who is the Director of Education at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, and we're talking about school choice 
and the sleight of hand that goes into this conversation about school choice. On the outside, it sounds like a great sales pitch to a parent to have their child go to a private school or a charter school, but we're finding out, as, as Dr. Owen's telling us, that studies are showing that these students aren't actually performing better, and all they're doing is eroding the public school promise that's in our state constitution to begin with. Sometimes it's hard to make that sales pitch to the better good of the community to a parent who wants to see the best for their child, though. Doesn't Does that make sense? Oh, I completely understand. And I think that we've kind of, we forced parents into the scarcity mindset that like, look how, you know, if your child is struggling, um, maybe they would be able to do better at a private school. What's, what's held from them is the fact that all the rights that you lose out on the second you remove your child from public school education, mm-hmm. rights that have been fought for, for generations, for multilingual learners, uh, for students with disabilities, uh, you have to forfeit those federal protections uh, just as the hope of a private school, a private school will do uh, right by them. And, and we're talking a private school coupon um, that, that parents will go into debt to finance their children's education because we have forced our our schools into this difficult position where they have more needs than resources, our public schools. And so I. I have a hard time if lawmakers tell me that schools need to be doing more for students. I 100% agree with them. Mm. We need to we need to provide schools the resources they need to do right by all kids. Mm. But if that same law, lawmaker says, "Hey, maybe things will be better if I give you four thousand dollars off at a school that used to be a segregation academy," mm-hmm. that feels like we're pushing an agenda. We're not pushing support for all kids. We're pushing an agenda towards privatized education. And there are, I'm not making this up. There are segregation academies that were started in the state of Georgia that are currently receiving tax dollars mm-hmm. um, through these private school vouchers. And it's a story we've heard before. If we can, if we can defund the local public school and prop up parochial schools, private education, uh, you know, you're killing two birds with one stone. Mm-hmm. You, you are, you're dismantling um, the public sector and teachers who um, can work together and advocate for higher wages while pushing for kind of whatever agenda you might have, be it for Christian schools or a completely privatized society. This is almost uh, a little bit like, uh, I'm thinking of two analogies. One is the uh, the nightclub business. You, you talked about the line out the door, like the, the place that looks like the, the place you want to go to is the more exclusive club with the line out the door. So I, I think about this from almost from a marketing standpoint. How how do public school proponents win the marketing battle? I think as root, Americans of all political stripes want to have a high quality school down the street in their community, in their neighborhood, uh, that is meeting the needs uh, of of their town, mm. right? And so, like there there is this kind of like real draw to the exclusivity of the line out the door. Mm. Um, but that comes with a lot of exhaustion that now you're, you as a parent have to advocate and push for things that the state should be doing for all children. Right. And I will talk to parents all the time. who say like, I want to support my public school, but I feel like I'm not doing enough and it's just exhausting. Mm. And that's the thing. We shouldn't have to rally around, um, clean drinking water. Right. Or, um, a streets, and interstates that are smooth and not going to destroy our cars, uh, mail being delivered on time. We should have like a, 
a strong foundation of high quality services that are provided to everyone because parents are exhausted. Right. They shouldn't have to be the only thing. And, and that puts too much on our families. Um, I know that they are, you know, the fundamental unit to recognize the needs of children. Um, but we all benefit from an educated populace. Mm-hmm. I, I want yes. not only my kids to do well, but I want your kids to do well, my neighbor's kids to do well, and they're invested in ours. So let's let's quit pretending like um, that we're all in the wilderness alone when we can like work together to create high quality public schools and we can afford it. There, there, this is not going to require like a huge lift by the Georgia General Assembly. There's some low hanging fruit of ways that we could afford this for all communities. And, and I think people deep down realize that, uh, that the, the education of their child should not just be whether or not this parent wakes up the next morning willing to fight tooth and nail just to get basic services. And, and, and on that note, I also liken this a little bit. It's a little ana- analogous to uh, our discussion on what our police department should look like. Uh, police departments will tell you, police officers, uh, sheriffs, chiefs, they'll all tell you how they're also overburdened and understaffed and aren't equipped to deal with all that comes with the job. Uh, we talk about the defund movement in the police circles, and it's not so much about taking from cops. It's about adding funding for other services that police departments find themselves needing to deal with when they're on call for, you know, mental instability calls, things of that nature. There also seems to be uh, some parallels in the education discussion, right? I think that's absolutely right. That there, that, that the, the quote unquote need for the privatization of education, it's no surprise that it happens in states where the investment in the public school system is historically low. Mm-hmm. Arizona's, Florida, Indiana, Louisiana, Georgia, these are states with significantly lower investment. That puts a lot more pressure on your teachers, mm-hmm. on your principals, on your school buses to act as public transit. And the end result is that we can see like the unique needs of our child. You can see it happen where you're just like, I wish they could go further for blank. And, and what it is is we've just created this kind of dog eat dog world where there are so many more needs than we have the resources for, um, that we have, we've just gotten used to the idea of our state government defunding public education. And now we've encouraged parents to fight amongst themselves. I, I'd like to propose a different world um, where we all know that every single community has a great school, not just if uh, the houses are worth a lot in, in that county. We're on with Dr. Stephen Owens, Director of Education at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. And on that note, is there a better mechanism for funding equality that doesn't diminish the educational outcomes in those higher income neighborhoods, but can also lift educational outcomes for folk, for children in poorer areas? Absolutely. That's the thing. I have got no ill will to rich communities. That mm-hmm. is fantastic. They are they're recognizing the impact of these schools and putting additional dollars towards that end. Um, but you could tax like Clayton County, right? Mm-hmm. I grew up in Clayton County. It does not have a lot of property wealth per child. Right. You could tax those residents at a hundred percent. You're still not going to be able to raise the funds of neighboring Fayette County, which has a lot more property wealth per child. And again, that's, there's nothing against the Fayette counties in this world, but mm-hmm. the responsibility of the state, is to make sure that every school is taken care of. Yeah. That's the constitutional requirement. Mm. And so I think one of the things that we've been pushing for a lot 
is what's called an opportunity wait. Georgia is one of only six states without any funding specifically to support students living in poverty. The evidence on school funding is overwhelming that if you can provide targeted support for students in low-income communities, you can close what, what people call that achievement gap, mm -hmm. the difference in test scores between low-income kids and their high-income neighbors. You can make that disappear if we have funding equity. Mm -hmm. And if you were to do something like that, like House Bill 3 is a bill that the Georgia General Assembly has right now for students living in poverty, this would be money that goes to every single school district in the state. Mm -hmm. It would just overwhelmingly tip the balance for those school districts with lots of students living in poverty. Think rural school districts, think, think low-income cities in metro and exurban Atlanta. Mm -hmm. That that would just it would revolutionize Georgia, revolutionize Georgia's funding system to be one of the best in the nation. I genuinely believe that. We're on with Dr. Stephen Owens, who is the director of education at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. We're talking about an opinion piece written last week by Corey Burris, who is with the Georgia Center for Opportunity. Corey, incidentally, once hailed from Washington State and was a member of the Freedom Foundation, who says, quote, we're a battle tank that's battering the entrenched power of left-wing government, union bosses who represent a permanent lobby for bigger government, higher taxes, and radical social agendas. Just so you know who we're dealing with with this opinion piece. More of Dr. Owen's response to him next. More Ron Show on America One Radio next. Follow The Ron Show on Twitter at Ron Show ATL. The Ron Show on America One Radio. We've been talking with Dr. Stephen Owens, who is the Director of Education for the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Corey Burris of the Georgia Center for Opportunity wrote an opinion piece in the AJC where he talks about uh, an appreciation for public schooling and somehow not starving public schooling of funding while also funding vouchers, coupons, scholarships for school choice. I mentioned going into the break that Corey was once a Washington State native and part of an organization called the Freedom Foundation. And the Freedom Foundation says in their own literature, we're a battle tank, not a think tank, a battle tank that's battering the entrenched power of left-wing government, union bosses who represent a permanent lobby for bigger government, higher taxes, and radical social agendas. Just to give you an idea what Corey Burris is all about and the Georgia Center for Opportunity by proxy. Okay, so in our conversation with Dr. Owens, we were talking about funding equity, not across the county, but across state lines, regardless of the county, on a student-to-student -student equity basis. But I had this thought. Is there a mechanism, by the way, to exclude things like uh, property value costs and uh, security costs, et cetera, for uh, schools that are in... Uh, you know, higher property valued areas and, and areas with higher crime rates? Not that I've seen. I mean, there's a, every now and again, there's a bill that comes up that just like completely removes local property taxes as a way to fund the schools at all. The problem with that Ooh. is that we would need to find billions of more dollars in state funds. Like if, if we're going to remove that responsibility from local dollars, um, then we would need to find that money in state dollars. That's income tax. Sales tax. Oh no, no. What um, what what I meant what I meant is I understand that like there are there are schools, failing schools in larger cities and impoverished areas of those cities where property values may be higher, and so the cost to maintain a school in that in that zone may be higher. But also because of heightened crime, there's also heightened security measures that have to be taken on the school campus. That's what I was talking about. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely right. That when you have students who are living in poverty. 
um, the needs are just so much greater than uh, a good textbook and a good desk. Yeah. Um, that I've talked to school folks who talk about the need for to address uh, migrant students, right. uh, students whose parents are moving uh, from short-term lease to short-term lease yep. because that's the only way that they can provide a house yep. <laughs> for their children, mm. food insecurity. Mm. So if if we don't support these needs outside the school, mm. which we don't in Georgia, we're one of only, what, 14 states that hasn't expanded Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, our cash assistance for poor families is so strict and so little mm-hmm. that that's the best way that we know to relieve folks of poverty is that cash assistance. Child care supports, especially outside of Metro Atlanta, are, are so minimal. It is really, really difficult to be poor in Georgia. And if we're not going to meet those needs outside the school, then we need to meet them inside the school. And, and that's one of the reasons we push for things like an opportunity way, along with all those things like Medicaid expansion, yeah. cash assistance and and getting rid of our, our those racist policies that put just more black and brown people in jail than their white counterparts um, kind of absent criminality. Well, I'm glad you brought up race because the school choice game, the Buckhead City movement, a lot of these to me are like lazier forms of white flight. I mean, there's just no bones about it. That's how I see, I see these as lazier forms of the mid 20th century white flight. Okay. I don't want, I don't need you to comment on that. That's just something I needed to say. <laughs> oh no, I, 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 I was giving you, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't cutting you off. No, I think that you're absolutely right. The way I explain it to folks too um, my mom uh, was a single mom with three kids. Mm. Um, she uh, did not have a lot of money while we were in elementary school. She did not have the time to shop around private schools mm. for us three um, and would not have had any income to supplement uh, so that we pay so that we could afford a private school. Right. Um, because of generations of white supremacist policies that have connected race and income in the state of Georgia, we know that any supports in the public sector. Um, can be a tool for racial justice. Uh, there's a reason that the South has just the most integrated schools in the nation to this day, because there's a strong government presence to integrate schools, to dismantle segregation mm-hmm. uh, amongst our public schools, and to require certain supports for students, specifically students of color. Mm-hmm. And anything to take away from that, especially if it's used, if if people will say, no, this will be good for for all people, I'm afraid you're building a car uh, and you're you're driving people to a place that very few people want to go, mm. which is an entirely privatized system where you're not sure of the rights that your children are guaranteed, uh, rights that have overwhelmingly supported those marginalized in society like black and brown Georgians, like those learning English and students with disabilities. So, no, I 100 percent agree with that. Good deal. Dr. Stephen Owens, Director of Education at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Thanks for your time talking this through with me today, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Incidentally, in all fairness, we will share that opinion piece from Corey Burris and the Georgia Center of Opportunity from last week's AJC. In today's show notes, you can find the show notes and listen to today's show in its entirety at ronshowatl.com. Of course, we're on all the podcast platforms now, too. Let me just toss my hair back a little bit. Yeah, that's right. We're on uh, Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, of course, still on SoundCloud. We park the entire episode on SoundCloud. Those of you who've been listening for a long time on that platform as well. So I'm pretty excited about tomorrow's episode already because I'm going to be talking with a good friend of mine from South Carolina who is really handsome dude. He was one, In fact, he was in a Cosmopolitan magazine a uh, piece about like the 50 beautiful guys, one from every state. This guy really has it all going on for him, you would think. And yet 
looking at them on the surface and then knowing what's going on on the inside can be two completely different things. I mentioned that because he launched a website to help those who have mental health shortcomings from time to time have some way to reach out to those in need because he himself has battled depression. Despite being handsome, despite being married to a beautiful woman, despite being a success, depression, the quiet killer inside a lot of us. We'll talk with Johnny McCoy from the White Flag app tomorrow on The Ron Show, 5 to 6 p.m. on America One Radio and on your podcast platform.